Have you ever walked past a dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash can. You're listening to the True Crime Dumpster podcast with hosts Amy and I'm Kevin and we're coming back at you after about a half a year break. (laughs) Took a short hiatus. Had stuff going on. Life happened. Yeah. But now we have a nearly one and a half year old kid who walks and talks and stuff. That's probably the main reason it's been so long. Yeah. Trying to keep up with her. So let's just pretend like we didn't have a happier off and just get on it. This is episode, what, 84? Is that where we left off? Yeah, we left off at 84. We've con- we've done a couple of we these. We were on such a roll. We were kind of for a while. And then, yeah, we'll see. I don't know how often we're going to be able to do these, but... We'll just we'll just go with it. This one was just been kind of, you know, in my back pocket for a little while. So I thought I'd uh, pull it out. So this one is Herb Baumeister. Normally, I like to name episodes after victims, but he's just got too many. Herb? Herb. Herbert the pervert. He's also known as. Wow. Was he in The Mentors? (laughs) So Herbert Baumeister was born on April 7th, 1947. He was the first of four children. His father was Dr. Herbert Baumeister, a successful anesthesiologist, and his mother was a loving housewife. They lived just north of Indianapolis in Washington Township. And by all accounts, he was a great big brother and he had a normal childhood. He was seen as caring and sensitive. However, once puberty hit, Herb had a change inside of him. Are you ready? Because the story gets weird right now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, that didn't take long. Okay. Okay. Me. Acqu- according to the book where... Oh, and I did read one book, which I guess I should probably talk about my sources now. I read one book a couple of times. It was called You Think You Know Me, The True Story of Herb Baumeister and the Horror at Fox Hollow Farm by Ryan Green. And I really couldn't use it as a source. I enjoyed listening. I did the audiobook twice. I enjoyed listening to it, but he just, he makes very big claims without any evidence. Like he's giving you Herb Baumeister's like interior monologue and the interior monologue of victims. And there's no way that he could have known. He fictionalizes stuff. So it's a great book and things very much maybe could have happened that way, but there's no way to say that it's nonfiction. Like it's definitely fictionalized. I but, watched the Ghost Adventures episode. About oh yeah, Fox about Fox Hollow, Hollow Farm, Farms. which I and would it say was a good one. It, it was that's definitely better evidence than if you think you know me, which I think is a great book. I just don't think it should be used as a source. So, admittedly, that's as much. That's where I'm getting my info. Yeah, I also read there. I mean, a ton of websites, obviously Murderpedia, on all that's interesting, and some blogs, and yeah, I'll put it all in the show notes, but uh, lots and lots of stuff, because there isn't a ton of information about A, Herb Baumeister, and there's not a lot of information about his victims either, because as you'll see. Well, we'll find out. Yeah, you'll find out. You see a lot of the same information being shared over and over again, and so I'm kind of trying to boil down the best of a lot of different websites and books and stuff. So like I said, 
in the book Where the Bodies Are Buried by Fanny Weinstein and <laughs> Melinda Wilson. Is that one name? I don't know. I That's worse so. than Abigail's name. <laughs> by the time he reached his adolescence, it became apparent that something about him wasn't quite right. A close school friend recalled that Herb would fall into strange reveries, often pondering repulsive things like what it would be like to taste human urine and doing strange things. One morning on the way to school, he picked up a dead crow that he had been hit by a car, shoved it in his pocket, and then when he got to school, he put it on her desk while the teacher wasn't looking. There was also rumors that he had urinated on the teacher's desk as well. Those are weird things, yeah. Irresponsible and often combustive, Herb's behavior soon caught the attention of his father, who made him go see someone. <laughs> so he went to therapy. Yeah. Well, he was examined because he, he was trying to figure out what the heck was wrong with his son. So he eventually was diagnosed as schizophrenic. And a couple different sources say he was diagnosed as a kid. A couple different sources say he was diagnosed as an adult. He may have actually done both or either or. But regardless, he was diagnosed schizophrenic, having a two or more sighted personality base. It was like schizophrenia with like multiple personalities. Right. And that's been like most multiple personalities is, is kind of like not a thing. Just so you know. So you're saying it's just demon possession. Basically. Okay. He could have been. Sweet. And he didn't have any further treatment. Though Herb's grades were pretty good, his social currency was pretty low. Most kids didn't want to associate with the class weirdo. In his college years, it got a little better, but he was fairly directionless. He dropped out during his freshman year and returned for a semester here and there throughout the next four years, but he never actually graduated. Due to his father's persistence, he was able to get him a job at the Indianapolis Star which was a major newspaper in town, and they hired teenage Herb as a copy boy. Gary Donna, an advertising executive who worked for the paper, remembered that Herb was sensitive as to the way he was viewed and treated by the higher-ups. He obsessively wanted to be somebody. He dressed well and was eager, but did not fit in, which kind of was his whole life. He didn't really fit into his family. He didn't really fit in with his classmates. It's no surprise he didn't fit in with his coworkers. So piss, the piss drinkers turns out yeah, small click. The piss drinker who likes dead crows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was one odd incident that occurred when Herb offered to drive Donna and his friends to the IU football game in hopes that he might become one of their friend group. So when the day arrived, he showed up in a hearse. <laughs> Yes. I know. It sounds like one of our friends. Probably acquired through his dad's connections because, again, his dad was like a big doctor in town. And he pulled up with the lights flashing and he raced to the game, like making jokes and laughing the whole way. And he even had like a chauffeur's cap on. He was acting like their chauffeur. And it's like one of those things where Herb is the only one in on the joke. You know what I mean? Is like, it a no, joke? Exactly. So people were just like, Ugh, right? So on to another job. I don't know why he stopped working at the Indianapolis Star. Maybe he was fired or whatever. But he did go on to another job at the BMV, which is the 
Bureau of Motor Vehicles. A couple of his coworkers said that he was kind of difficult, that he would rant and rave at employees for no apparent reason, and that the longer he worked there, the odder he got because they think that, you know, he was tenured and it, was, it would be harder for him to lose his job. One Christmas, he raised eyebrows around the office because he sent coworkers a card with a photo of him and another guy dressed in drag. <laughs> and again, this is like the what? He was born in 1947. So this is like the 60s. Happy holidays. Yeah. So, I mean, again, like funny. But again, like if you're the only one in on the joke, like it's only going to be funny to you. So I think it's pretty funny. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm glad we weren't friends with Herb, though. Though he was quite the character at the BMV, he was surprisingly good at his job. So co-workers said that I guess somebody kept pissing on their boss's desk and like it was this open secret that it was obviously uh. Herb, but he was good enough at his job that I guess the dude would just wipe the piss away and just ignore it. Like you it have happened to be numerous, really good at your job. I guess it happened like numerous times, but then... I guess he sent a letter to the governor of Indiana and he pissed all over the letter and that's what got him fired. <sighs> He's a weird dude. Yeah, weird guy. He'd fit right in with some of my friends in, in New oh, Zealand. God. Oh, God. Australia. Okay. Sorry, Australia. In November 1971, Herb married a young lady named Juliana who went by Julie Sater, a college-educated high school English teacher who is also a young Republican. Oh, if I didn't mention, yeah, he is a self-proclaimed Republican and joins like young Republican clubs at his university. So that's what they kind of bonded on at first. She was a young Republican. He was a young Republican. They wanted the same things in life. They both wanted to be in business for themselves eventually. And so they decided to get married. Hmm. That is actually the most shocking part of the story so far. Yeah. This is where there's like conflicting reports because some say that he was diagnosed with schizophrenia as a kid. But I think there's more sources that say that he was actually diagnosed with schizophrenia as an adult. And it was on a visit to the couple. His father visited them and again, like talked to Julie and said, hey, we need to get her evaluated and Julie was like, yeah, he's a little off. He's a strange dude. Let's do that. So he voluntarily went along with it. And he that's when he was either diagnosed again or diagnosed for the first time with schizophrenia with multiple personality base. It was a relief to him because he was kind of feeling crazy and depressed. And he would go through these gnarly mood swings. And the diagnosis kind of came as a relief to him because it gave him an excuse for acting the way he did. And he was really good at compartmentalizing things like being, oh, we haven't really talked about this, but one of his personalities that he claims was a gay party animal. <laughs> <laughs> Loved going to like gay bars and one that was obsessed with dead things and another who was a young Republican husband that would soon be a father. All of those things existed inside of him and he felt relief that all of those things were supposed to be in him. So he's like John Wayne Gacy without the clown outfit. For sure. Very okay. similar. Yeah. Julie quit her job as a high school journalism instructor towards the end of the 70s to concentrate on having a family. And they had little Marie in 1979, 
Eric in 1981 and Emily three years later. After Herb was asked to leave the BMV for pissing in a letter to the governor, Julie did have to go back to teaching for a time. And one of the jobs that Herb landed during this time, because he kind of had burnt bridges with a lot of his dad's friends and stuff. So he had to kind of get jobs on his own at this point. He worked at a thrift store. So though he didn't love it at first, he learned to love it over the three years that he actually worked at the thrift store. And he thought, if they can do it, why can't I? He just needed to find a building and then to pair with a nonprofit because that's what kind of validates the business. So in 1988, Herb and Julie's dream came true of owning their own business. And they started the thrift store called Save-A-Lot Thrift which opened in conjunction with the highly respected Children's Bureau of Indianapolis, a centenarian charity benefiting the area's families. Okay. Okay. So in the first year, they made $50,000, which is the equivalent of like $350,000 here or now, I guess. Well, now it's probably like $400,000. Yeah. Even from the time I I researched it. (laughs) And after three successful years, they decided to open a second location. So this prompted them to move from their modest middle-class home to the estate known as Fox Hollow Farm, which you know from the Ghost Adventures episode and a lot of things. It's a house that's studied a lot. And I think the guy who currently owns it is like super into people coming and checking it out. A lot of people, when they own historic homes like that, even like the Goonies house in Astoria, they're not into people coming. Like the guy who bought Fox Hollow Farm. I don't think the Goonies house is haunted. Well, I know, but they're not into people even coming up their driveway at all. Yeah. They're just like, keep dry. I think the people who owned the Goonies house before the current owners were like, or maybe it was just them, but they just got over it. But I remember even like 10 years ago, like Jamie went one time and he they actually let him inside the house. What? Yeah. But of all now, people, why would you let Jamie in your house? <laughs> but now like they closed off the house and they don't want. They like boarded up. There's like signs and stuff that say don't go up the driveway yeah. or whatever. It used to be cute and now it's like, get the fuck away. Well, I think people that own haunted houses that know they're haunted kind of in, like, yeah, you, like to have the investigators there because it kind of validates wanna, what yeah. they experience. Yeah. So Fox Hollow Farms was about 20 miles from Indianapolis in Hamilton County. Get this. It was an 11,000 square foot home. That's big, right? Yeah. I mean, ours is 1,200 here. So it'd be 10 of our houses. Okay, yeah. <laughs> or uh, I guess good. nine of our pretty, houses. Pretty good. Yeah. And it was a Tudor-style mansion with an indoor swimming pool. And it was set on 18 acres of rolling wooded landscape. So there was like a forest in their backyard. The forest was their backyard. Yeah, no one can hear you scream. It was Julie's dream home. And it was a perfect place to raise her kids. Nice pool. We'll talk about the pool. Do you know about the pool? I know about the pool. Oh, 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 that's right. Okay. So though things seemed to be perfect from the outside looking in, things were indeed not perfect. The house was described as unkempt and cluttered. Like once they got the property, they just ran it to shit because they couldn't keep up with it. Like if you're going to live on an 18 acre farm slash forest slash have an 11,000 square foot house, you're going to have to have like an innkeeper and like a and a, a groundskeeper. Yeah, like, you need a crew to take care of that. That's like yeah, a lot of that's, stuff. It's a lot of stuff. So speaking about things looking good on the outside, but not so great on the inside. Get this. Julie later admitted that she and Herb 
had engaged in sex only six times in the 25 years that they were married. Yeah. And this came straight from an interview with this guy we're going to meet in a little bit named Vandergriff. Six times. Yeah. That's what? Once every four years? I mean, yeah. Once every four years, but not even because they had three kids within like six years. That's where they probably had all their sex was to have the kids. And also another thing, she never saw her husband nude. Oh, a never nude. He was nude. a never nude. Oh. And he dressed in the bathroom. When he came to bed, he would always have his pajamas on slipping in between the sheets. He was apparently ashamed of his skinny little body. <laughs> wow. So Julie would often take the kids to see Herb's mother, but he would never go with them saying that he had family business to tend to. So in 1994, Herb's 13-year-old son, Eric Baumeister, came into the house to show his mother something on a stick. You want to guess what's on that stick? Uh, human remains. It was a skull. A whole skull. A whole skull. That's... And when his mother, Julie, asked where he had found it, he said in the wooded area of the backyard and that the whole place was littered with bones. She's kind of freaking out. That's what happens but when you waits. don't take care of your place. She doesn't call the cops. She doesn't call the cops. She waits till Herb comes home and she goes, Herb, what's this? And he goes, oh, that little thing. <laughs> that old chestnut. And he like totally played it cool. I mean, you, you can't even guess what he said. He was like, oh, well, you know how my dad was a doctor? Yeah. Well, I mean, they need anatomical skeletons, right? So I inherited them after he passed away. And I thought they were kind of ghoulish and creepy. So, you know, as you do with anatomical skeletons, you bury them in your backyard, right? Naturally. Naturally. So that's what that was. Duh. And guess what? Julie believed him. <laughs> End of story. Well, that settles that. So that's a little bit about Herb. Kind of a weird guy, right? The story could have ended there. He obviously doesn't know how much you could sell those skeletons for. <laughs> well, yeah, in this in this economy. That could be the end of Herb's story right there. But someone had to stick their big nose into it, which obviously we're really glad they did. In the early 1990s, gay men started disappearing from the Indianapolis area. It seemed like the police didn't care. So two of those people that went missing, Alan Broussard and Robert Goodlett, uh, 28 and 32 years old, their mothers enlisted the help of this guy named Virgil Vandegrift who was a professional private investigator in Indianapolis. And at the time, he was a retired major crime investigator from the Marion County Sheriff's Department. He communicated with this other investigator at the Indianapolis Police Department named Mary Wilson. And the two of those guys, they began trying to connect this string of missing gay men from the area. And they were pretty convinced that they were connected. And, you know, the police at this point had not connected them. They're just like, oh, those gay guys, they live high risk lifestyles. They're just probably trying to get away from their families and go to glitzy, bigger cities. So that was kind of the belief then. Like the police were not willing to investigate it. Kind of like the same deal with like sex workers. Sex workers right, and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Runaways. Exactly. So both Alan Broussard and Robert Goodlett, the two guys that were missing, they looked alike. They were similar in age. They lived similar lifestyles and both disappeared on their way to a local gay bar. So they're like, yeah, there's too much in common for this to just be coincidental. 
Goodlett was last seen willingly entering a blue car with Ohio plates. So Vandegriff, who's the private investigator that the moms got a hold of, he was notified by a local gay magazine publisher that several gay men had disappeared in recent years and learned of the Interstate 70 killings, which was happening during this time period as well, which I will talk about that later. So during this investigation, Vandegrift received a call from this badass, ready, <laughs> named Tony Harris. That's uh, not like ba- the most badass name. Well, I'm it's a pseudonym say. to protect his privacy. He's never come out publicly oh, okay. because of, you'll, you'll see why. So he called Vandegrift and he detailed this harrowing experience he had with this guy named Brian Smart. Tony claimed that this guy named Brian Smart and him were sitting at a gay bar and Brian Smart was looking at the missing poster of his good friend, Robert Goodlett, and was making a weird face at the missing poster. And so Tony was like, huh, this guy is kind of weird. Maybe I'll follow him. Okay. And so he started flirting with Brian Smart and Brian Smart invited him back to his house. And he was like, okay. Tony wasn't really familiar with the area because where this guy was taking him, Brian Smart, he was taking him to a place outside of the city with really big houses and horses and all that stuff and forests, you know. And so Smart led him to his house and through the side door where there was this pool a pool filled with mannequins around like all around the pool right i don't know if you've gathered this yet brian smart is a fake name yeah i think we've got that brian smart is her baumeister yes okay so he's leading him back to fox hollow farm and tony harris is Mr. Detective here because he's like I'm tired of my friends disappearing because he's part of the local gay scene he's like I'm I'm tired of my friends disappearing and this guy is acting weird I'm just gonna go and see what happens I mean could you imagine he thinks he's just gonna have maybe like you know just gonna see where this guy lives or whatever or see what he's all about and this guy took him 20 miles away from the city yeah the the mannequins is where I would um take off yeah well, I mean, he doesn't he doesn't know the area. So they, I believe, do some cocaine. And the two of them get on the topic of autoerotic asphyxiation. Naturally, that's yeah. what you do after you do, do a, a bunch of blow. Yeah. yeah, and go home with a random dude. Brian Smart, we already know, is Herbert Baumeister. He suggests that they do it together and that Tony chokes him out while he masturbates so he's like hey tony you you choke me and i'm gonna masturbate myself i thought they might do it at the same time and just like race to see who could finish i don't know so he suggested that tony try it too but during the event he realized that herb wasn't going to let him go and he just proceeded to choke him out so again fucking crazy that he took this chance to see if like what this dude was all about But luckily, Tony was able to open his eyes and he didn't die, which is amazing because he should have. Herb slash Brian Smart panicked and claimed to have been scared when he passed out. He was like, oh, my God, are you okay?" Right. And the two were supposed to meet up again. And so he was like, oh, let's do this again. 
remember, Tony is calling Vandegrift, the the private investigator, telling him all this. And he was like, okay, try to meet up with him again. And I will follow you guys to figure out where this house is. But of course, Brian Smart slash Herb Baumeister never showed up again. Because I think, you know, his, you know, he felt the jig was up. And so, yeah. yeah, he knew I think he knew something was kind of sketchy about the counter. And so Tony continued going to his local, you know, local gay bars, hoping to see Brian Smart again to, you know, get more information from him or get a license plate. But he didn't run into him for another year. And so really the investigation completely stalled at this point. But then a year later, Tony saw him. And so he got the license plate and immediately called Vandegrift and gave him the plate number. And when they ran the plate, lo and behold, it did belong to Herbert Baumeister. Okay. So eventually, Baumeister was informed that he was a suspect, but he did not allow a search of his house because I don't think they had an official warrant yet, so he could say no. And he told his wife don't let them search the house. And so she said no too when they tried to do it when she was not around. And remember, the skull incident has already happened. So she's like, oh, what the fuck? He's under investigation for murders of these two men, potentially more. Like, And I found these bones in my backyard and my marriage isn't going that well. I'm sure it's all just a coincidence. About this time... Herbert Baumeister starts kind of freaking out and he's not like the best husband ever. I don't think he's ever been the best husband ever, but he starts really acting really unpredictable and scaring his wife. And so she really starts thinking about this skull incident. And she was like, this is too weird that he's wanted in multiple murders. And this is making, this is sketching me out. So as their marriage is falling apart, she decides, fuck it. I'll let them search the premises. Right. Yeah. And while I guess they were searching the premises, her Baumeister was actually out with his son and she was able to basically get her son safely back from Herb. And then when she got her son back, he fucking tore ass out of town, obviously. So as they're searching the premises, they find an estimated 11 victims on June 24th, 1996. After Herbert Baumeister bolted from Fox Hollow Farm. You know, they're talking to Julie and they start making the connection to the Interstate 70 killings because she was like, oh, he would go on business trips similar to the route where all these people were found dead. Hmm. I wonder if that has any connection. So she starts making that connection. And at this point, I think she realizes that her husband is a monster and the person that she's been married to for 25 years was a lie. Right. So could you imagine? No, <laughs> absolutely not. Well, maybe with you. I've I don't know. I've got something to tell you. So Herb, he bolts for the Canadian border. He takes minimal belongings with him, but it is believes that he took a bunch of VHS tapes with him. And it is also believed that he potentially, and this has never been proven because there's been no evidence, and that's why it's not even reported a lot of places, but a lot of people say that he potentially taped the killings. 
right. in it in his creepy pool mannequin place. Yeah, that's what I think they were talking about on Ghost Adventures too. Yeah, but it's never been proven, and so I guess when I, I guess there was a time where he pulled over and took a nap or something, and like a Canadian mounted police dude checked he wasn't getting stopped for like a speeding ticket or anything but he stopped and talked to herb and he noticed a bunch of vhs tapes in his back seat and was like oh it's just something he noted there is more to the story okay on july 3rd 1996 three campers in ontario's pinery provincial park found a body sitting in front of the lake with a hole in its head and it was herbert baumeister no, was he surrounded by his video cassettes? N- no, no, that no VHS tapes have ever been found. But he did have a three-page suicide note next to him, and it's never been fully released. But apparently, a lot of people are just like, it's just a lot of bitching about his failing business, his failing marriage, and he never ever mentions the fact that he potentially killed a bunch of people, or about the investigation at his house or anything. I'm sure it's just one of the other personalities speaking. Maybe. Apparently in the note, it also talked about how he wanted to kill himself in a different place in the park, but he saw children playing there and he thought it might be like traumatic for the children to find him and he didn't want to make a big mess for the children to find. Like that is a concern. Yeah. So he's not all bad. (laughs) It's just crazy. It's uh, it's super self-deluded. And we also know that his final meal was a peanut butter sandwich. How do we know that? I don't, I'm guessing because it was in his car or right by him. He, like he ate the peanut butter sandwich, did the suicide note, and then shot himself in the head. Nice piss martini. Yeah. <laughs> As of now, there are eight victims identified at the Herbert Baumeister house, Fox Hollow Farms. They are Johnny Bayer, 20 years old. Alan Wayne Broussard, 28 so it's interesting because a lot of places say Roger and a lot of places say Robert. And I always knew it as Roger. So either Roger or Robert Goodlett. And I'm sorry I got that. There's two different names for him. But half of the things I read were Roger and half of the things were Robert. So hmm. Richard D. Hamilton, 20 years old. Stephen S. Hale, 26 years old. Jeff Allen Jones, 31 years old. Michael Kiern, 46. And Manuel Resendez, 31. All of his known victims were gay men, generally from their mid-20s to 30s with a couple outliers. All of his victims had been out at gay bars when they disappeared, likely lured away exactly as Tony had been. He would pick them up at gay bars when Julie was away with the kids spending time with his mother. (laughs) How do you like that one? Yeah, I know. And definitely happened during times where he felt like his marriage was stressful. He would bring them back to his creepy mannequin pool place and would essentially, I guess, strangle them to death. There he would drug their drinks and strangle them using a hose before burning their remains and burying them. Because he's dead, he can't officially be charged with their murders, so he'll just go down as a suspect. But, I mean... I I didn't know that they couldn't charge you. I guess... Yeah, they can't. What's the point? Yeah, there's there's been a lot of cases where even if there's overwhelming evidence against you, if you aren't tried and convicted, they can't actually say that you did it. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why Herbert Baumeister is obviously not, like, one of the heavy hitters out there is because he was never actually, like, convicted of these crimes. He never actually faced any sort of justice at all. 
So also interesting, I said we would get, come back to the I-70 killings. The person responsible for these killings, which overwhelmingly people believe it was also Herbert Baumeister. So it's kind of crazy to think that he has two totally separate killing fields. You know what I mean? One right. at his house and one that spans, you know, the I-70. It's just weird that you would, you know, shit where you eat, like kill people and dump them in your backyard. That's I mean, not... so many people did that, though. Dahmer, Gacy. Yeah. It's just in that Poughkeepsie killer, the that one guy, he like hid all these bodies in his parents' house. Then it stunk. It's so weird. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, part, I don't get it. I, I don't get it either, obviously. So just to talk about the I-70 killings a little bit, it is still unsolved today. So the I-70 Strangler killed at least 12 boys and men in Indiana and Ohio between June of 1980 and October of 1991, which totally, Julie totally accounted for that time of him being on the road a lot for like sales stuff. And same MO too, strangled, right? Yep. Yeah. So their bodies were dumped near the I-70 and the killer would choose young boys and adolescents as victims whom they met at popular gay bars and other similar establishments within a four block radius in Indianapolis. So same exact <laughs> victim profile. All yeah. the victims were found either naked or partially clothed near I-70. Some of them, it was only some it would be like half of their body was found often dumped in rivers, streams and ditches in the rural countryside. And again, each had been strangled to death in total. 12 men were recorded as official victims. Michael Petrie, 15 Maurice Taylor, 23. What's a 15 year old doing at a bar? Delvoid Lee Baker, 14. Oh, geez. But they said also similar establishments, it, or, you know, wasn't necessarily all gay bars. It could just be kids bumming around, you know. Michael Andrew Riley, 22. Eric Allen Rodiger, 17. Michael Allen Glenn, 29. James Robbins, 21. John Paul Talbot. Stephen L. Elliott, 26. Clay Russell Boatman, 32. Thomas Clevenger Jr., 19, and Otto Gary Becker, 42. That's a lot of dudes. I mean, so if you think about it, there's at least 11 at Fox Hollow. There's at least 12 that I-70. So we're, I mean, we're in definitely, obviously, the double digits. Mid-20s. Yeah, we're, we're talking 20 plus. And that's just of ones that they can identify, pretty much. You know, there are some law enforcement out there that thinks that his numbers are in the 50s. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. Potentially one. I hate the word prolific, but it kind of fits here. He could potentially be a very prolific serial killer, but he was never found out. He was. No able, wonder he only banged his wife six times. He was too busy he, banging all these other people and killing them. He's probably banging those mannequins, too. Probably. And those mannequins were display mannequins for the, the thrift store. They're creepy as fuck. Yeah. And going down a bunch of rabbit holes on this, people, de there's a lot of murderbilia. Is that what they call it? Murderbilia. Yeah. That you can get from her Baumeister. I don't, I didn't see any of the mannequins. And I'm not interested in murderbilia at all, just so you know. There Speaking of murderbilia, we went to Zach Bagan's haunted oh, yeah, museum we did. in Vegas. We went to the Psycho Las Vegas Fest to see Merciful Fate, and that fest was fucking fun. And so we went to this 
Zach Bagan's museum, and that and place talk about is insane. Yeah, he's got everything. Fucking insane. He's got like he's got Doctor Kevorkian's van. He had Ted Bundy's kill kit. Oh yeah, he had, no, it's his his rape and kill kit. Yeah. Yeah, his glasses like disguised and like all this shit, and, and like his ski mask, Gacy photographs and paintings, and like, and he's got like Richard Ramirez's, Richard Ramirez's ashes, <laughs> yeah. and Charlie Manson's like piss and hair and blood and ashes as well. So weird, Some fucking crazy shit there. So yeah. if you're in Vegas and you want to see some crazy like, shit, a hundred dollars because that's how much it ends up being almost because it's fifty dollars for admission, and then if you want to bump up. There's a bunch the of extras you can do. To the do. VIP, which they call the RIP, it's $80. It's $30 extra. So it, you're going to spend at least $80 if you're going to go to Zach Bacon's museum. Because if you're going to go, you got to do the That the basement is fucking legit. Yeah. That's what I'm going to say about that. Yeah. So <laughs> anyways, there's so much stuff out there about Herbert Baumeister. And a lot of it feels fictionalized. And that's one of the reasons it's kind of hard to do an episode on it because there's just so much random information out there. But this is just my way of trying to sort through most of it and to give you some of the kind of crazy shit that Herbert Baumeister probably did. Most likely did. Yeah, we've probably overlooked a few things, but overall. Yeah, and what ends up happening with guys like Israel Keys. Do you know who Israel Keys is? Yeah, he's the one that traveled all over the place. Yeah. Well, so he killed himself before he was convicted and before he said who all he killed. So it's kind of a similar Herb Baumeister thing where these prolific... You never get an answer. Well, so these prolific serial killers, they kill themselves before you get answers from them and right. before they can get convicted. So what ends up happening is that all these police stations all around the country are like, oh, well, maybe he did it. Maybe he killed this guy or maybe yeah. he killed this guy. And they're just trying to pin all these unsolved murders. They want to clear these, all their cases. Exactly. Right, yeah. So that's what ends up happening with Israel Keys. That's what ends up happening with Herbert Baumeister. That's what ends up happening with, you know, what's that confession killer guide? Otis Tool or whatever. Or Henry Lee Lucas. He's the okay. confession killer. When they realize that, you know, Henry Lee Lucas was like confessing to every other crime uh, in all of history, people from sheriff's department started calling in and being like, hey, can I clear this? Like, can you get your guy to admit to this? You know, so that's the problem with not convicting people and actually going to a trial is that it's just so easy to put cases on these guys and you know herbert baumeister he probably killed at least 25 people and was a humongous piece of shit there you go that's basically it yeah and tony harris definitely the protagonist of the story and i believe that the private investigator the the virgil guy i believe he's still alive and i think he's still doing work today wow yeah so interesting story right yes yeah and I wouldn't mind visiting Fox Hollow Farms. I mean, I love to see a, a, a beautiful old home, but I don't believe in ghosts. So, although if I did, that would be the one. That would be the one place that's probably haunted. I wouldn't mind snooping around the backyard. Yeah. So that's it for this week. Join us some other time. We'll see you in six months. <laughs> <laughs> Have wait. What do we usually say? <laughs> You can follow us. Oh, no, don't. Yeah, you can follow us. We'll see. We're on all the social media things. Yeah. We don't really post on there. Yeah. 
because we just do this for fun yeah so tune in next week as we continue talking out the trash is that it we used to say that six months ago yeah okay all right we love you <laughs> <laughs> bye 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 now <laughs>